0: Today's episode of Sliced is brought to you by Startup Networks. Are you tired of filling out contact forms just to get ghosted by investors? Well, Startup Networks is a platform for you. Networks is an all-in-one platform devoted to helping you get funding. With the network's innovative AI technology, founders are matched with interested investors and investors are matched with interesting founders, all from the comfort of one easy to use platform. Try Networks today for free at StartupNetworks.com. That's S-T-A-R-T-U-P-N-E-T-W-O-R-X.com. Hi, and welcome to The Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Hi, and welcome back to The Sliced Podcast. I'm Emily Ahrens. And today we have a special episode with Seth Levine, partner of Foundry Group. For those of you not in the know, Foundry is one of the largest networks of entrepreneurs and early-stage investors in the country, managing over $3 billion in funding. Our guest today is partner and co-founder at Foundry, founder of Pledge 1%, and co-author of The New Builders, Face-to-Face with the True Future of Business. Hi, Seth. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hi, Emily. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I am so excited to learn a little bit more about you. That's already a long intro compared to some other people. So we've got a lot to chat about. You've done, you've been yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, I'm old, so yeah, I've done a few things now (laughs) in my career.
0: (laughs) Well, tell me where you're originally from. I know that you're just outside Boulder now, but were you always in the Longmont area? Uh,
1: Not quite. I was born in Boston. Although actually, we moved to Boulder. When I was uh, 11 days old, my sister and I have this argument because technically she's a Colorado native because she was born in Boulder, and then we moved back to Boston 11 days after she was born. And I feel like that's totally unfair. Oh, wow. She she <laughs> lived, you know, 20 for the first 20 something years or 21 years of her life not in Colorado, and then she moved here after I did after college. Um, and I actually was almost born here. I think if I was born a month later, my parents would have yeah. already moved. So we, we have this kind of funny joke with each other that she's the native, even though I lived here when I was a baby.
0: You were just on the cusp. Do you remember the move at all?
1: I, yeah, I don't remember that move. Although <laughs> my dad, we would, my parents, my grandparents, my dad's parents lived in Colorado. So I spent every summer of my childhood coming to, uh, to Denver. We would actually stay with them for six weeks every, uh, every summer. Uh, and they lived awesome. a little south of Denver, kind of Hamden and Monaco. And so um, so all of my early childhood memories of the summer are being in Colorado, hiking in the mountains, swimming at the pool, all of that.
0: That's so fun. Well, it looks like you got your education from a college in Minnesota. Why Minnesota and what did you study? <laughs>
1: Well, uh, no, there was no, the
0: <laughs> yeah, there was no tone. Yeah, there's no tone there was no tone implied there. Just why Minnesota. Yeah, no.
1: <laughs> I uh, I know. I appreciate the question. I I love the East Coast. I'm a huge Boston fan. I get back as often as I can. But the truth is when I was 18, I really wanted to get away from the East Coast yeah. for a little bit. Um, and I didn't want to go all the way to the West Coast. So I stopped in the middle. Turns out Minnesota's pretty amazing. Um Awesome for all sorts of reasons. Great culture, great nightlife, great art. Um, and you know, I had a really fun time there. I, I, lo- I essentially moved there. I lived there for all of the summers, other than my first summer when I went hiking in Colorado um, mm-hmm. and then made some money to pay for it. But but the rest of my summers, I just stayed there. Um, and I love living there. I still go back pretty often. I'm a trustee of McAllister, so I have reason to go back. And it, it was a great experience. Um, and I, lo- I have a real affinity to the Midwest. I think it's in part why I moved back west after spending a few years in New York, uh, so I, I just I had this real affinity towards uh, towards the Midwest and the West uh, in the U.S. and and I just I wanted to get back.
0: I love that. And you studied psychology and economics, two things that I did not study when I was in school. Did you have a plan upon graduation? You know, what were you going to do? You know, with your degrees.
1: Well, absolutely. I was going to be a professor of psychology was my okay. idea, and I had a um, experience very late in my college, my time at college, where it, it's actually worth talking about because it, it was like a transformative experience for me. We there was a a lecture series at school. It was an endowed lecture series, and um, there was a relatively famous, uh, I guess he was a sociologist who came in to talk about. Being on welfare and welfare reform and things like that. This was in the the kind of early nineties, um, and and it was a big deal. There was a huge dinner, and all these people showed up for it. Um, and then uh, there were probably I don't know four or five hundred people. was I mean, standing room only in the chapel area where we held these sorts of convocations. Um, and it was it was fine. I mean it was an academics take on welfare, and um, it wasn't super mem- super memorable, but it was memorable because of the experience. Two days later, a woman who had been on welfare herself and written a, had, had sort of lifted herself out and written a book about her experience, uh, gave a talk on campus. And I thought, well, this is perfect, right? We just heard this sort of academic talk about it. Now I'll go and, and learn from someone who actually lived the experience. It happened to be in the same chapel, so it was the same, same physical space. I, I mean, I must have been one of maybe a dozen people that showed up to that. And I just thought it was a real aha moment for me fortunately not so late in my senior year that I couldn't kind of switch tracks a little bit. And I just thought, you know, I I don't know that academia is for me, nothing wrong with studying it, but I just, for me personally, felt like maybe being with the the smaller group of people that wanted to sort of be on the ground, getting their hands dirty um, versus the bigger group that was a bit more pomp and circumstance was more what spoke to me. So that was kind of how I, I, I ended up uh, sort of focusing more on the econ side of my degree, as it were, instead of the psych psych side of my degree. What uh, what did you study in school?
0: I studied broadcast journalism was my undergrad. So I don't have you know how they say that's like left brain right brain. I don't can't do math like numbers math could never do it. But reading and writing and storytelling, I thought I wanted to be a sports newscaster. And then oh, my parents were like, no, that's not going to happen. So then I got my master's <laughs> in marketing.
1: <laughs> but here you are, like really using am. your degree, right? I mean, True. very, very applicable.
0: True. Who would have thought? Because podcasting wasn't really, I mean, even when I was in school, it was not a, really a medium. I did an internship at a radio station, so...
1: Anything. Yeah. It's funny how it shifted, right? And now, I mean, yeah. a bit, how amazing that we've democratized the ability for people to engage in storytelling. You don't have to do it through this sort of centralized broadcast network in radio or television. You can create your own channel, whether that's on YouTube or a podcast. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, we were just talking about that. Sam and I were just talking about like how many podcasts, I'm sure you could Google it, but how many podcasts exist. There's a lot. There are a lot of podcasts out there. Yeah, well,
1: people—it's the long tail, right? I mean, there was that famous study that was done about uh, like jukebox plays, right? Right, like uh, song plays, and and um, it turned out that there was this massive long tail. This is Chris Anderson who wrote a pretty famous article about it in Wired, probably in the nineties. Maybe even the early '90s, Um, and he talked about this behavior of you know, yes, there were you know, at any moment there are popular songs and they have a lot of plays, but there's this huge long tail Mm -hmm. of other songs that aren't as popular that are that are still played, right? And and I think people misunderstood the power of the long tail, and that's what he described. And podcasting is kind of the same way. And you know, if you're into, I don't know, ferrets or something like that, like I'm sure there's a ferret podcast. There, I'm sure there is. Right, and that's what's that's what's great about it, and that's what's great about the internet. Obviously, there's some downsides to the internet, as we've all learned over the last handful of years. But, but the idea that you can connect with people that have like interests—I mean, how powerful is that?
0: And the possibilities are truly endless, really. So, yeah. Well, who would have thought? (laughs) Here we are. So that was a pretty, like, like you said, pretty altering event for you. Then, so you kind of leaned more into the economic side of things, which. Brought you to it looks like corporate planning in a at First World Communications was that your like first real job out of college?
1: I actually I had a stop at an investment bank in New York first. So I worked for a bank for a couple of years, which was an interesting experience. Um, It was a lot of hours (laughs) taught me (laughs) yeah, and but it taught me the basic. Sort of fundamentals of finance. I mean, I was a the- my econ major was a theoretical economics uh, major. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was heavy on on math actually, um, mm-hmm. and and econometrics and and sort of the- economic theory. And not, I didn't take any finance classes, so I didn't know. I actually remember sitting. So, at Morgan Stanley has the the way that they recruit people into their analyst class. Each school has a recruiting team and they get a certain number of slots and they fill those slots. So Harvard gets a certain number, Stanford gets a certain number, Brown, et cetera. And then at the very end, there's, I think it was like six or eight spots for all the other schools in the country that they don't recruit from. Um, Hmm. and so, and so I managed to get one of those spots, which was remarkably lucky. And, um, so I'm already feeling a little, Nervous going into the training program because none of the schools they recruit from are schools I could have gotten into. Some were schools I got rejected from, um, <laughs> and so I'm already feeling a little bit intimidated. I, you know, and I know that it's. I, I think given given their 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 choice, I think many people within Morgan Stanley would have been happy just to recruit from their recruited schools and not have these sort of like consolation prize, you know, eight analysts from these other schools. Um, and so I was already feeling bad about it. And I'm sitting in this training room. They, they put you through a three-week, really actually a very good uh, training program just to teach you the fundamentals of finance. And there's some weird things about how Morgan Stanley does certain types of analysis that they needed to show us. And we had to learn Lotus 1, 2, 3, which you probably never even heard of, but it's a it was like the precursor to Excel. And um, Okay. And so anyway, so we're in this training room and this guy's talking about, well, and here's how we do DCF and this mid-year convention thing and DCF this and DCF that. And I'm sitting there in this room, and not only am I not familiar with the, like, technical, like, how do you run a, a DCF, I literally didn't know what it st- stood for. Like, I'd never heard oh. the term before. And I was like, I'm, I- I'm screwed. Like, I am the I'm, I'm stupidest person <laughs> that- in this room. And there's no one to ask, right? There's no, like, I didn't have, like, well, yeah. I wasn't with a recruited school group, so there wasn't, like, I could pull someone I knew from college and be like, hey, what is this? There was no Google Back then, because this is in 1994. So there's no like internet. This is actually, we ended up taking uh, Netscape public. So it's pre Netscape, all of that. And I was like, I'm totally screwed. Like, I don't even know what this what this is and what this means. And unfortunately, I was able to like kind of piece it together and <laughs> figure out that that meant <laughs> discounted cash flow. And it was a way of measuring the future value of cash flows back to today. And, you know, I fortunately, they gave us some textbooks and I, I had enough stubbornness, I guess, to go through the textbook at, late at night. And kind of try to figure out what he was talking about. And, and um, anyway, so, you know, I've ha- I had a few experiences like that, but Morgan Stanley was, was a great experience. It was not, um, it was not an easy experience, but it was, um, it was another kind of accidental transformative. Like I, I've, I've had mm-hmm. a few of those in my life. I, I described that one going to that lecture, which I was not particularly planning on it. Someone, a friend of mine asked me to go. Um, and then the Morgan Stanley thing was kind of a result of I guess I'm not going to grad school for psychology. Like I kind of need to make some money now. What am I going to go do? And there were very few of us that could get recruited out of a school like McAllister. And so there was, I kind of got pushed into banking, Uh, not, not pushed in a bad way, but encouraged. Um, Cause there were only a couple of us that year that went to banking. And so, so I kind of fell into that. And then, you know, I kind of fell into moving to Colorado too, because I, I, Morgan Stanley made me an offer to stay a few few people every year they in the analyst class they offered to basically skip business school and you can become an associate which is the next level up, um, and I was going to do that. We actually moved to Hong Kong and it's a really interesting i uh, you know oh, idea wow. and, and potential. But banking was hard and I I was it wasn't the lifestyle I really wanted. And again another accident I was really almost ready to say yes. And one of the analysts, so a 22, 23 year old in the group that sat in the kind of bullpen, the, the cubicle area next to us had a heart attack um, just from oh my overworking. Gosh. At
0: and 22? it was a real,
1: yeah, at 22. And it was, um, wow. he was fine. And when it was clear, he was fine. Like his, his group was like, we had, we didn't have cell phones back then. We had pagers. Um, and his group was like paging him in the hospital kind of as a joke and he was like calling back me, hey can I what can I do what can I do and I was like you know what maybe this isn't what I want to do and we <laughs> happened to have done a deal in Colorado and, and I thought you know I I love Colorado as I told you earlier I spent all my summers here. So I called up the CEO of this company, I mean totally out of the blue and just said hey I think I'd like to move to Colorado. Is there something that I can do for you? This is actually pre-First World. Um and he said yeah absolutely someone's gonna call you in 10 minutes And this guy called me and said, My name is Sheldon Oringer. I am, you know, I run corporate development for uh, ICG is the name of the company. For I C G, you know, I just heard from Shelby and I'm gonna hire you. Like he basically said, I have to hire you. (laughs) Tell me about yourself kind of thing. Um, and so I um, that's how I ended up in Colorado. I moved out in the this was the summer of Ninety six. I flew, actually, my stuff got packed up in New York. I flew to Minnesota. My best friend from college uh, lived there, still lives there. And he and I drove from uh, Minneapolis to to Denver. (laughs) And that's how I ended up here.
0: That is a crazy story. So many what-ifs. You know, your life could have turned out so differently if you maybe just – it's like those small things that you end up looking back on thinking, wow, if I would have – to, you know, taking that one left-hand turn or that one right-hand turn. You know, how different would things be?
1: But doesn't everyone have that, right? I mean, your decision yeah. to start the podcast and where you ended up going—you know, going into a graduate school instead of pursuing sports broadcasting—like it's, you know, yeah. everyone ends up with these moments in life, and you don't know in the moment that it's so pivotal, right? No. I mean you have to—you have to look back, and and then that's when you realize, oh wow, this was this is really. Turned out to be this important fork in the road, and took 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 you in a different direction.
0: I also feel like it's that's almost for the best that we're kind of guarded from that because I feel like if we knew at every moment, at every fork, that it was pivotal, 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 I feel like it would be, it would be sensory overload. It would be too much to process. You know, it's almost best that we kind of are just kind of like dumbly <laughs> going along. Otherwise, it would just be. I for me, anyways, I'd be like panicking, like, "Oh my gosh, this is such a huge." Well, decision. I totally agree.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the challenges. I'm going mean, to sound like an old, old fogey now, but one of the challenges, and I see this in my kids. I have teenagers, and and you know, I was able to make a lot of decisions in in a very private way, right? With my uh, cons- consulting with myself, p- perhaps, or my family, or my friends, and, and not having to sort of broadcast in real time that decision-making process. And I, I watched my kids struggle with that a little bit more um, mm-hmm. as everything has become so public. And I've, it's hard sometimes to remind people, and I have to remind myself this too, I live my life relatively publicly, you know, online and, and in other mediums. And, and, you know, there's some things that are, are private and, and don't need to be shared publicly. Um, and I think we sometimes, I think we all sometimes forget that and, you know, taking moments to to allow yourself to have that kind of privacy. I just, I think it's yeah. so important.
0: I agree. I definitely agree. So, so you're in Colorado now, you've made the road trip, you've got the job, walk us through what happens next. Cause we're now on the path, I'm assuming to foundry.
1: Almost. Yeah. So there was a quick stop. So Sheldon who called me and said, Hey, uh, this other guy, Shelby, uh, two sh- shells, shell names, but, uh, said i I need to give you a job he ended up being a a, sort of a really trans another transformative person in my life just again dumb luck that i ended up working for him he got recruited out of icg uh, a couple years well first of all at icg i ended up doing all this transactional work because they wanted to start buying other companies i had zero experience in mergers and acquisitions but i had been a banker and they falsely assumed i had that experience i was again i was like 23 and so they they basically turned to me and said hey you were a banker. Why don't you lead the M efforts here? Um, and so that's how I learned this the craft of of M Did a ton of deals uh, for uh, for ICG, and then then Sheld- Sheldon got my my direct boss got recruited away for another company, and he asked me to come over and join him. Um, and so I ended up coming over to join him. I was supposed to work for a guy who was running corporate development, and he was fired. I think it was my second day because Sheldon basically said, "I don't trust him, and I trust you." Now I'm 25, oh. and he said, "I want you to run corporate development." And by the way, we're not going to hire a CFO. You're just going to be corporate finance, and we have a chief accounting officer. So we're going to just have you split the CFO role, um, which was remarkable. So I, you know, I had a really interesting experience there. We um, we negotiated a bunch of fiber lease deals with Enron, actually, uh, oh. which is an infamous, infamous company. I actually sat across the table from Jeff Skilling and, and negotiated some of these fiber rights deals. Uh, back in the mid nineties now, and now it's maybe 97, 98. Um, and so, yeah, so really kind of interesting that company went, eventually went public. We bought a bunch of businesses, um, and that company went public in the internet bubble. Um, and I was, I basically led that effort. I mean, it was, what a great experience. I mean, I was totally out of my element, but I was so lucky to be surrounded by a group of advisors and lawyers and other people that were able to really kind of walk me through it. And I, I learned Uh, very quickly sort of how to, you know, how to do these things, how to take a company public, et cetera. And we raised a bunch of money alongside the IPO from, from these other strategic investors. Um, And, uh, and so anyway, so we went public in the bubble. Uh, We actually went public two days before the internet hit its, or the uh, NASDAQ hit its high in March of 2000. And then the bubble burst and the company went down and eventually my boss got fired and they, uh, we brought in a consulting group to try to f- help us figure out what to do, and they ended up deciding to sell off most of their assets and focus on just one aspect of the business. So they put the entire rest of the business under me to run oh my gosh it's about a 50, fifty million dollar business and And my job was to sell it off in pieces and so i I did that over the course of about a year. This was sort of mid two thousand to kind of mid two thousand and one and so i I ran that business i I helped it was burning a lot of money. I helped. Get it to not burn as much money, and then I sold it off in three or four different pieces. Um, and I was kind of wrapping that up in the summer of two thousand and one, and thinking about what I wanted to do. And I felt like I had offers to do more transit transactional work, like run M and A groups. Um, and I was I was sort of toying around with the idea of maybe kind of going into more general management. I, I I didn't mind being a manager. I had about two hundred fifty people in that organization that reported up to me. Um, but I thought, you know, I I really. I really liked the transactional work. And I I thought I had a bunch of friends that went from Morgan Stanley into private equity and venture. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do that, maybe now's the time. And so I networked into a bunch of different people. And one of the people I met is a guy named Brad Feld, who was a co-founder of something at the time that was called SoftBank Venture Capital. Um, And the funny story of that, so I ended up, they happened to be hiring for an associate position, um, which was a big step back relative to what I had been doing, but I just thought, you know, I mean, now's the time, right? I mean, I I didn't Mm -hmm. have kids. I was single. Like I could make an investment in myself effectively. And I I just thought, well, I'm going to give this a try. Um, and so I got hired for a two year associate position at SoftBank, SoftBank Venture Capital. And, um, and two years became three, three became four. I got promoted to this sort of like junior partner level. And then in, um, it was probably Five, I I went to Brad and and they were Mo, Mo, the company had changed its name and SoftBank became Mobius. Uh, Mobius was raising another fund and I said to Brad, Hey, I don't think I'm going to stick. I'm not. I'm not quitting today, but I'm not going to stick around for this next fund. I just I was a junior junior partner. Like I was, it was I was going to get to do maybe one or two things on my own. It just didn't make any sense for me. Um, by then I had I was married. I had we had our first t- child, and I just was like ready to go try something else. And and Brad said to me, you know, I, the uh, fundraising isn't going that well. I don't think it's going to happen. I was thinking about maybe we should do something ourselves. What do you think of that idea? And we started talking about that. We looped in two of our partners that we really liked in uh, in California. The, uh, Mobius was based out of California. And that was kind of the birth of Foundry. So in 2006, wow. Ryan and Jason moved out to Boulder. Um, and we started Foundry. And, and we started our fundraise in 2007. Um, which was a challenging time to raise a a emergent, you know, be a young manager. But but anyway, that's kind of the story of the birth of Foundry.
0: That is so neat. And so to kind of dive into what makes Foundry unique, you know, for people who may not know and who aren't Colorado-based, tell us about, you know, what is Foundry's investment thesis and what do you look to invest in? Is it only Colorado? Are you specific industry-wise? Kind of tell us what you guys look for.
1: Yeah. I mean we've always had this view that foundry was a national firm we had contacts sort of all over the uh, all over the country in particular in California because two of my partners had been based there um, we wanted to to start a firm that was a little bit different right this is again this is 2006 2007 um, there was no such thing as sort of emerging managers there were a couple of firms Union Square existed true existed spark existed but um, but it wasn't Sort of a thing, right? And and um, the the adage was really that you needed, if you wanted to invest in venture, you really needed to be in one of the marquee name firms in Silicon Valley as an investor. Um, and so it was very hard actually to raise the first Foundry fund, and, and it almost didn't get raised, uh, which was scary time for me because I put up my, I, I didn't have a ton of money at that point, um, and I put up my entire life savings to help start Foundry. We had to, you know, hire lawyers, we traveled for the fundraise, all that kind of stuff, and so we, you know, we split that, um, and that was the entirety of what I what I had. Um, and there was a time when I thought we lost that in kind of the maybe the spring of of two thousand and seven um but eventually sort of better minds prevailed and and we were able to to raise the fund but But you know we had a different view for how venture capital should be operated. We for a long time had no other people at foundry at, at an investment level other than the partners, and so we did all of our own work and we we still do all of our own work we have we've now hired a few. Uh, sort of associate level people that, that help us with the sort of shift in strategy that we've had over the last five years, but which I'll get to in a second. Um, but that was very different. We were very sort of open, transparent, clear about our intentions. Um, we invest in very specific themes, which are long-term technology trends, 20-year changes in, in technology that offer us multiple chances to make investments. We actually stood up a bunch of conferences around those themes so we could be the expert in those themes. Um, mm-hmm. So that was, you know, these were all things that were a little bit different than had been, than had been done in the past. Um, and the result was a really, and we were very, we were very close, are very close as partners. Um, and we had, you know, deep, the four of us had a long time working relationship and, and deep, deep relationships, right? I mean, we were all similar-ish aged at the time, um, you know, within a sort of seven or eight year span. And we we were very, very close, we, you know, vacation together, I mean, we still do vacation together and our families get together and, and all of that and you know again that was different uh, you know I think that gave a different different vibe of what we were trying to do both to founders that we were looking mm-hmm. to invest in as well as to our investors who who entrusted us with their money and that's worked really well we've we've raised now that first fund uh, was two hundred twenty five million dollars um, we've now raised a number of funds. Um, most of which were the same size. That was another thing that we did that was a little bit different. We only changed size when we changed strategy a little bit. Um, and and we now have over three billion dollars. We're about to close on on our latest fund. We we'll have over three and a half billion dollars under management, which is a very substantial wow. firm now. It's really I'm really proud of what we've built. We've expanded the partnership a little bit. We added uh, Chris Moody, uh, Jacqueline Hester, and um, and Linda Leibman. Um, And then we've also expanded a little bit what we do, which is very unusual uh, in in what I'm going to describe, which is that we, um, the four of us, Brad, Ryan, Jason, and I had done some personal investing in venture funds for a while, um, mostly just to help our friends out, to get quarterly reports, things like that. And um, we decided in in 2015 that we would try to institutionalize that. And so Lindell came to join us. He had been our lead investor at UTIMCO, the University of Texas uh, Investment Management Company. And um, and he was really the guy that kind of put us in business that was the, he wasn't the first yes, but he was the first big yes um, and he came and joined us in Boulder and in 2016, we raised a fund that was uh, had a piece that was dedicated to investing as an institutional investor in other venture funds um, and then in 2018, we brought everything together we raised a larger fund, and that fund is kind of what we do today, which is 25% invest in other venture funds, which is a really amazing group of 45 super diverse managers. Um, There's over 1,800 underlying portfolio companies. There are thousands of people sort of connected to Foundry through that. Um, And and so we use that to source our direct investing, which is typically Series A. Um, And then we do a little bit of investing in slightly later stage companies, what we think of as Series C, but that still have Something that needs to be underwritten. It's not. We describe it as not the spreadsheet round. So you're not plugging numbers into a spreadsheet mm-hmm. per se. There's something challenging still to get your arms around, um, and so that's what we do today. And that's actually kind of the, the basis for the fun going forward, the platform going forward. And as I mentioned, we've augmented now the team. We've and uh, we've added two. Uh, we call them investors, but they're sort of senior associate level people, uh, Mandy and Anjali, um, that are helping us. Particularly on the fund side, because we have a lot of companies to sort through as our pipeline, and so it's been it's been really interesting to kind of build the platform. You know, I think when we started it, we originally thought it was going to be the four of us, and and then eventually the we would we would be done, and then we'd shut the lights out. and And we've made a decision over the last couple of years that that, that wasn't what we're going to do. It sort of the platform yeah. became powerful, and let's let it outlive us. So we're working on sort of what that transition looks like, and. One of one of the original four is retired now. Um, Jason Mendelsohn, uh, who's off pursuing music and some other things that were interesting to him, um, and you know we're starting to think about you know what is what does the future look like for Foundry in a in a world where uh, you know we're not going to be done when the four of us are done. We're going to continue on, and it, it'll be Jacqueline and Lyndall and and potentially some others, uh, you know, taking taking it forward.
0: Yeah. Well. It- that's so great. And I think obviously things change and shift as you go on and making the decision to say, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to evolve because that's what things do. We actually have spoken to a few of your investments. Uh, Havenly is one oh, arrived and then Matchstick actually. So speaking of the fund. Outstanding in there. Yeah. Well, really I mean,
1: neat. Near and all of which are near and dear to all yeah. of my hearts, but my hearts in particular. So I'm I'm really happy to hear that. There's, yeah. You know, you asked me a question about where we invest, and I, I sort of glossed over, yes, around the country, but we do do a decent amount of investing in Colorado. And so probably, mm-hmm. if you just add it all up historically, about 20% of our capital uh, on the direct uh, investment side has been, so not the fund side, has been put into Colorado-based companies. Um, oh. Now, we're all over the country. Uh, we've done a few things in Canada, one thing in, in London, but but uh, Colorado is, has been a great place for us to invest, and and we've had a lot of success here. Havenly is a great example, arrived, uh, obviously SendGrid, which went public, a whole bunch of other companies uh, that are, are here locally.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to move on to Pledge 1%, but before I do, I do want to ask you one more question kind of about Foundry, and I'm curious, how important are fund managers and founders when you're evaluating an investment, and is there something, is there an X factor That you look for in a founder, or a particular culture that you look for.
1: Mm, I love that question. I would say it's very important, and so there's two things. One is that we—you talked about fund managers. We look for signal from our fund managers. Uh, So you talked of Natty and Ryan, probably from Matchstick when you when you talked with them um you know understand that we get we believe we get unfair insight into companies by having a conduit to those companies that's already on the cap table and that and maybe already on the board right so what they think about the company is really important and and i will say culture is extremely important right i mean mm-hmm. you are i, I don't want to compare uh being an investor in a company to a marriage because i think that's not fair But it's in some ways it's like a long-term relationship, right? Because the average time that an investor is invested in a company is seven, eight years, right? It can it can be longer. Brad was on a board of a company once; it spanned Mobius Two Foundry for twenty years with the same company. And actually, now we're investors in that 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 company was sold eventually, and now we're investors in that that CEO's new company, right? So these are these can be long-term relationships, and so you know we. We used to describe it as a no-assholes rule, and that's kind of a pithy way of saying it. But I think it's actually – it's broader than that, right? I think that, that it – and it much deeper than that in, in terms of um, the quality of the human that we're looking to invest mm-hmm. with and invest in. And so this is true both on the fund side, the managers that we choose to back, and the, the company side, the people that we choose to back. Um, I don't really believe in that adage. That, you know, People often ask, like, which is more important, You know, a great management team or a great idea? yes the great management team is more important if you were to sort them it's helpful to have both or at least a management team that's flexible enough to recognize it- iterations of that great idea right because so many companies start out doing one thing and eventually do something else that is a testament to the management team but you kind of want both right i mean it's you know right. you shouldn't have to choose one or the other um right. and i think that that's important
0: yeah well tell us about so you you do a lot obviously you're very busy and so we have another project, which is Pledge 1% that you're a co-founder of. And it yes. kind of is centralized around giving back. Can you tell our listeners really what that is and why did you choose to get involved?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it may be professionally the best thing I've ever done. Um, certainly the thing I'm most proud of. So Pledge 1% is an organization that encourages companies to give 1% of time, product, profit, or equity, equity is really important, um, to local Charities, basically understanding that they're not building their companies in a vacuum. The community in which they're building their companies or communities uh, matter and matter a lot. Um, and this was, we founded it sort of before maybe the world was thinking this way quite as much. It was mm-hmm. an offshoot of something called the Entrepreneurs Foundation. Uh, so there was a group in California that started. I did, wasn't involved with the starting of that. And then uh, it was called Entrepreneurs Foundation. And they had a couple of other chapters around the country, one of which was spun up by a guy named Ryan Martins. Was the co founder of Rally, which was a company that was um, early in sort of web development tools and went public, eventually bought by Computer Associates. Um, and so, and I got involved with the Entrepreneurs Foundation, again, not as a founder there. Um, and EF in the Bay Area kind of folded. There was some sort of, I don't know exactly what happened, but it, it, it kind of went away. And we realized that there was an opportunity to fill a much larger vacuum. And so a group of us got together, included. Um, Mark Benioff from Salesforce, uh, Scott Farquhar from uh, Atlassian, uh, Ryan, uh, a handful of other people from Suzanne DiBianca from Salesforce, uh, a handful of other folks from, from those organizations, um, and decided we would, we would start something that would fill the vacuum that was left by the Entrepreneurs Foundation kind of going away and would expand on that model. And it became what we now call Pledge 1%. Um, started in Boulder. Uh, Out of the Mm -hmm. Community Foundation of Boulder County, actually, is where we kind of launched it. Um, Eventually, we spun it out of the Community Foundation. And now it's become really an international organization. There's nearly 20,000 members. We're responsible for over a billion dollars in cash. Uh, being uh given to local uh local nonprofits and and foundations it it is it, and that's just like the tip of the iceberg because we have mm-hmm. i mean that probably was generated by you know a thousand of the 20,000 companies right i mean not not we barely scratch the surface of the potential obviously many of those companies turn out to not be valuable and so the 1% of equity which tends to be the thing that generates the the real return for local and local charities may not be worth anything but a few of them End up being worth a lot, right. and that's where that's where we generate those profits. It's a very audacious thing to say, "Hey, I'm going to put a stake in the ground, and I believe my equity is going to be worth something, and I'm going to pledge it to uh, to a local local organization." I should say that Foundry has participated as well, and, and through our pledge, we as Foundry have given away millions of dollars to local uh, institutions here in sort of the greater Denver Boulder area. We continue to participate all of our funds um have an allocation uh, to pledge mm-hmm. 1% and we just we think that that's the right way to do business and the right way to be a good steward of our community.
0: I think that's so great and I I love the different options too because maybe if you're not liquid enough to be able to to give financially give your product if it's a consumer good or give, you know, give your time. I I think that's really great the different avenues that that people and organizations could choose. They're not and pigeonholed into just cash.
1: Absolutely, and what a great way to uh, build trust as a team, right? To go volunteer right. to do something, for example, right, um, or to know that that your work is is in part benefiting something beyond just the company and its shareholders. And that that I think is really important as well. And we've seen companies use it in very powerful ways. SendGrid is a really good example. Samir Dokla, who uh, was the CEO when the company went public and really was responsible for the, the sort of final growth phase of that business, was a, is a huge advocate for Pledge 1% and, and mm-hmm. has, continues to be involved with the organization. And they were um, very vocal not just within the company, but also within our community about why that mattered to them. Um, and it's I think it's really I think it's really paid dividends across other businesses who see that example from Samir yeah. from Sendgrid and said, hey, I want to do that too.
0: Yeah, no, it's awesome. How do you feel, if at all? Your experience as a co-founder with Pledge 1% has lended or lends itself to you as an investor. Kind of you're in the founder space and then you come over to the investor space. Do you feel like there's crossover there and has it made you a better investor?
1: Well I think it's made me a more empathetic investor. And I would include in that by the way, Emily, just founding foundry, right? I mean, you know, having an yeah. experience of starting anything, just as you you started your podcast, like having that experience of being a founder and understanding what it's like to, you know, to go through this formation stage, right? I mean I remember choosing the name for foundry and, um, you know, figuring out how to set up benefits and, and payroll and all of that stuff. Right. Not that I did each of those things myself, but we were right. collectively trying to figure this stuff out. And, um, that, and, you know, starting pledge is the same, is the same way. It gives me, it gives me empathy and it gives me energy. I, I, I joke, my bio says something about being easily distracted, which is true. And I joke with my partners cause I'm always doing random stuff. Right. Um, working with different funds and different companies i just got back from 2 weeks in israel and the west bank working with companies there i just i like that stuff and i what i say is it makes me a better investor because it makes me gives me energy for my day job um mm-hmm. as did writing the book right i mean it was not you know no one accidentally writes a book like that and it certainly was not the easiest thing to do it took up a lot of time but i i find for me personally i don't know if you feel this way but like sort of like it's not a filling my time sort of thing it's more of a when I have other things that I'm passionate about, I'm passion- I get pa- more passionate about everything in my life, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think it's helpful not just to have one thing. And I've never been the kind of person that was like tunnel vision, only doing this one thing. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. People have that personality. I do not. And so it's helpful to have other things to distract me. I don't, I don't know if, that, if you relate to that as well, but yes, I imagine for you've sure. got other things you care about and, and that I gives think- you energy at your main job.
0: Absolutely. I think most women would say that we're like multi-brained anyways. (laughs) It's impossible for us to think about, for me anyways, just to think about one solo thought. That must be amazing to just have one thought in your head. That's not how my brain works at all. I'm, I got a lot of things going on at once. (laughs) It's (laughs) it's a blessing and
1: a curse, right? I mean, It it, it can be, it can be wonderful because you have lots of things going on and Sometimes you're just like, hey, quiet down. Like, I need some peace here.
0: I know. (laughs) Well, speaking of your brain doing lots of things, and you mentioned it, your book, The New Builders. Yes, yes. How did this come about? And tell us what it's about. You mentioned it being the true future of business. What do you mean by true future?
1: Yeah. So our conception of who starts businesses today is completely wrong. Um, I didn't realize that when I went to write the book. I, uh, I had met my co-author, Elizabeth, Elizabeth McBride, um, through some mutual interests that we had actually in the Middle East. And um, we developed a, a, a close friendship, and we would trade stories of entrepreneurs, just interesting stories. She's a, she's a, a, a writer, uh, writes for, for magazines. And um, one of the times she came through Boulder, we got to talking about, well, what maybe we could write, write some of these stories into a book format. Uh, kind of lighthearted, almost like a coffee table style mm-hmm. book. We were going to call it Faces of Entrepreneurship. And the idea was to uh, shed light on some founders that were maybe a little bit outside of the mainstream, essentially not white male founders. Um, and we started doing a bunch of research. This is probably early 2019, maybe in late 2018, um, doing some research on sort of these different different founders that you were reading about. And we, we learned that entrepreneurship in the United States is is dying. Rapidly, um, and that the people that are starting businesses today don't look anything like we hear about in the news. Right, women and people of color, in particular, are starting businesses at significantly higher rates um, than others. Women start businesses at a rate that's four times the rate of men. Uh, black women start start over sixty percent of all of all businesses started by women. So the the future of entrepreneurship lies in places that we. Are kind of ignoring, especially from a system of capital standpoint, and so the people that control capital still look a lot like me—white male, middle-aged—and um, we're not doing a good job of connecting capital with new builders. So we we realized there was a much more important, a bigger story to tell here. We spent about a year doing the research, essentially all of twenty nineteen, doing re- research for this. And I hope I hope your listeners will read the book. Um, it kind of I hope balances, but it, it does two things, right? One, it, it tells stories. Of new builders and we write the story of I don't know, 16 or 20 new builders and then we use those stories to punctuate data and research about who is getting funded why they're getting funded and how they're getting funded um in ways and who's starting businesses in ways that help bring uh sort of we marry the two things to bring to light the the statistics in a way that feels meaningful but also personal um, and so that was a lot of research to. They went into that. Uh, it was. It's definitely not one of those books where you're just sort of giving your opinion. Um, and so that was really all of 2019, and we started sort of sitting down to write the book right as COVID hit, right at the beginning of mm-hmm. 2020. If you could take yourself back there, and and of course one of the things that we know. From the especially the early days of COVID, is that COVID disproportionately, significantly, disproportionately affected businesses that were run by women and people of color. Forty uh, percent mm-hmm. of black-owned businesses went out of business in the first month of COVID. Uh, some of that has rebounded now, as as some new business starts have have picked up. Um, but that gave us a real sense of urgency. These are stories that need to be told. So the the book is not about COVID, but it does weave in some COVID-related stories because we we kind of checked in with everyone. Uh, during right. COVID, and then as we were finishing the book, we checked in with everyone, we, and we finished the book almost exactly a year ago. Is kind of when we we went to press, um, and it was released not quite a year ago, maybe uh, maybe ten months ago, uh, mm-hmm. nine months ago. And so we that was sort of the 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 process of writing. Um, it felt very urgent. It, it's funny, like, you know, everyone has their COVID story, right? You know, I picked up Taekwondo or I learned to play the piano or I spent more time with my kids or whatever it was that, that some you know, people did with sort of this bonus time of not commuting and, and not traveling in, in the case of those of us that traveled a lot. And, and for me, it was I wrote a lot, right? So I took right. all of the travel time that I might have had and I, you know, I was writing 5,000 words a week, um, wow. at, you know, in the height of the summer of 2020, just to like power through Uh, writing the books. There was just so much to get out and so much to talk about.
0: I really like how you described kind of the double or that two-pronged approach of you know, a real life story, so real people, a real story, a real application, and then applying it to, you know, the research that you did And some, it's just kind of that double approach of, hey, this is real, these are real people, this is really happening, and and here's what we found. I think that's really neat. Who would you say you wrote the book for? Is it current entrepreneurs, anybody in business, people wanting to get into business? Anybody well, at all?
1: Yeah. Primarily, we wrote it for the new builders. And I say that to people yeah. all the time, right? I wrote it for people. It's funny, too, because one of the things we talk about in the book is this narrowing of the definition of entrepreneurship. It used to mean really anyone starting a business, right, or, or running a business, mm-hmm. uh, whether that was a corner shop or a farrier or a blacksmith back in the day or, or anyone, right? Um, and we've narrowed that that definition, right? People think of entrepreneurs. They think about the Silicon Valley tech founder. Um and I think that's a real mistake. Actually, we, we found this with many of the new builders we talked to. We would refer to them as entrepreneurs and and many of them said,, hey, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. That wasn't a label that I thought I thought of of, of putting on myself. And one of the reasons that, that we just decided to title the book, The New Builders, is we wanted to give this next generation of entrepreneurs a label, right? Something that they mm-hmm. could have agency around. and And I've loved hearing from new builders saying, I'm a new builder, like they're proud of that. And that that says something to them. So primarily, we wrote it for them. Um, Secondarily, I wrote it for uh, my peers in uh, venture capital, Elizabeth, uh, for her peers in in business journalism, as a little bit of a wake up call that we are, we have our blinders on in a way that is pernicious and and not um, to the benefit of our overall economy, we should stop talking about just sort of these high-flying, you know, unicorn-style uh, businesses mm-hmm. of Silicon Valley, but talk about entrepreneurship more broadly. We, you know, we talk – we contrast unicorns with camels. Uh, it's a term that, that Fred Swannakers an amazing entrepreneur in Africa, came up with. Um, and, you know, camels are real, for starters, so they're, it's, they actually exist. But, uh, you know, they're the workhorses of the economy. And the truth is that uh, 40% of GDP and 50% of, of employment is still driven by small business, almost 100%, in some studies, over 100% of job growth is also driven by small business in the United States. So this is an important economic engine. And by the way, that says nothing about the 70 million people that participate in the gig economy. Um, That was just sort of really catching steam as we were sort of doing our research. Mm -hmm. And and of course, those people are entrepreneurial in their own ways as well. Um, And so we've, we've had a tendency to ignore that in our discussion, and certainly in the venture world, ignore that. I'm not suggesting that venture should be funding those businesses. The venture business model, funding model, is not appropriate to many businesses, but we should start seeing those new builders. We should start thinking about better forms of capital that can connect those new builders to forms of financing. Venture capital mm-hmm. only funds 1% of all businesses. Banks only fund about 17% of all businesses. So most businesses exist in this sort of middle nowhere. Nowhere.
0: Yeah, that's that's a lot remaining
1: (laughs) yeah it's over 80 percent of of businesses need to find some other form of
0: financing well 5,000 pages a day would you do it again would you write another book
1: Elizabeth and I have talked about it. Yeah, five thousand words, not pages. That would be words. <laughs> that would be daunting.
0: And <laughs> I by was the way, giving should- you a ton of credit. You should have let was- it slide.
1: Oh my gosh, there's no way. <laughs> it makes me tired just to think about that. Um, it's funny because some days you you sit down to write and it just flows out. And you know, I would I would always write in the start in the mornings. Um, and I I, and I don't know what Elizabeth did. She was she was also writing a lot, but but. Um, I for me, I would start in the mornings and I would write until I had all five thousand words done. And some days I was still writing at seven o'clock at night and other days I was done at noon and I was back to my day job. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting. Depend a little bit on what I was writing and, and sort of yeah. how I was doing it. I learned a lot. You you mentioned this sort of narrative style. I really learned a lot about the narrative style from Elizabeth. She's a very evocative writer and and she did a great job early on being patient with me and editing. We edited each other's stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of each wrote, there were you know, a few, few chapters that one of us wrote versus the other one, but most of them we kind of co-wrote in some way. And she was great at, at showing me that narrative form. And, and I think yeah. it's one of the things I got out of writing the book that I really appreciate was the, was the understanding of how to write that narrative in a more, um, a more evocative manner.
0: Yeah. Well, before we let you go, we'll make sure we tell everybody where they can find the book and things like that. So we'll make sure we do that. That's so neat. And to kind of close us out, I want to pivot a little bit from, because we've really chatted mostly about business and things like that. But I want to pivot to you specifically and kind of pick your brain about, you know, your life a little bit outside of the business sphere. And if you have any future aspirations that you'd like to accomplish, you mentioned you've run a marathon and that you, I can see behind you, you have about seven bikes, <laughs> so you <laughs> must be, be a cyclist. <laughs> Is there anything that you're looking to accomplish personally in you know 2022? I guess we kind of just started it.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I you know my personal goals in 2022 really are related to more probably more to my family. My my two daughters are going to go to college in 2022. I have a okay. son who's still still a teenager, so he's not quite there. Um, and so that's a lot of what I think we're we're really kind of focused on is that, that last time with them at home um, and then getting them set up. It's funny. I often, in, in many years, I will have an athletic goal of some kind to, to ride, do a certain bike ride. Last year, as you mentioned, it was to do my first marathon. I did it with a friend uh, in Berlin, actually. It was really fun uh, to run the so Berlin neat. Marathon.
0: Yeah, it was, I, I would highly the... recommend it. I did the London Marathon.
1: Oh, how was that? It's another major, right? I mean, that's- So that good.
0: So huge. You know, when they line you up at the beginning, when you, when you start, like the corrals, I knew which corral to go to because they had blimps. Like you were the red blimp corral, like the wow. green blimp corral. How many people
1: run uh, London?
0: I'm going to say, and probably be wrong, I think it was close to 50K.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's yeah. about the. I mean, Berlin is kind of the same way, right? It was, I think it's 50 or 55,000. And it was, yeah. it was fun being in the corral. What year did you run it?
0: Okay, so this is 2022. It was probably 2017 or 16.
1: Okay, so pre-COVID. Yeah.
0: Def- oh, yeah, definitely pre-COVID. No, it was a wild experience. I trained by myself. My family came and was with me and watched me run. But I ran it by myself. I don't think I listened to music. I did not have any gel packs with me. I ran in college, so I had like a small chip on my shoulder in the sense I was like, I'm just gonna do it and not be a wimp about it. Yeah. Fully blocked out around 15 miles. Have absolutely no recollection of going over the London Bridge. Do Like, black. Black, wow. no memory. Yeah. So, anyways, maybe better. I
1: I vividly remember getting to mile twenty, which at that point is approaching. I mean, so backing up four months, I was I am not a runner, although as you mentioned, I'm a cyclist. Four months before I started the training program, I don't. I mean, I could run, I could barely run three miles, right? I mean, I was not a runner, and I did one of those you know apps and told you what to run every day. So the longest run I'd ever done in my life was this twenty mile run, which is the long run you do you know a month before the marathon. And so I hit mile 20, and I, and I'm, you know, one, I'm realizing, okay, every step I'm taking is the longest I've ever run. And I had this initial surge of like, yes, I'm at mile 20, like I'm getting close. And I'm not a very fast runner. And I, 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 then I did the math in my head, and I was like, oh my God, I've got like 45 more minutes. <laughs> minutes to like, go. Mm-hmm. I am, I have got to like gut this out.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, it was brutal. I was totally disoriented. I, the only thing I do remember is, you know how they had the little water stations. I remember stopping at a water station and asking a stranger in the crowd. I couldn't tell if I was running fast or slow. I said, am I towards the front or towards the back, would you say? And the person looked at me like an idiot, and they were like, towards the front. I was like, <laughs> okay, I must be doing okay. Yeah. I had no concept of time. I don't know
1: anyway it's such a funny thing isn't it yeah, and yeah. By <laughs> way, i made the same mistake i did not run with any gels and again mm. i'd never run that far and i had a bunch right. of i had food with me but i, I by the end there i my it was a really hot day it was an unusually hot day and berlin starts late it's it's a most marathons start really early i my start time was 10 30 in the morning so yeah. you know we're, we're it's se- I'm really several late. hours in right so it's it's kind of the middle of the day and i couldn't eat the bars that i had because i just didn't have enough like moisture in my mouth, and so that was definitely. I totally bonked at the end. It's that was traumatizing. Definitely my yeah, it was. I don't know that I'm ever going to do one again. Maybe, but yeah, um,
0: I don't know. We'll see. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Well, pivoting to something more positive <laughs> um, to close us out. This is kind of our question, but for you, when will you know that you've lived a successful life and had a successful career?
1: Wow. I mean, I hope the answer is that I already have. I mean, I'm proud of what I've done, I'm, and I'm not suggesting that I'm ready to retire or that I'm I'm am in in any way sort of uh, ready to be done. But I, I hope that I hope already that looking back, I feel like I've impacted people in a positive way. And mm-hmm. um, writing the book was part of that. Pledge is part of that. Foundry and what we've been able to accomplish at Foundry is part of that. All, we haven't even talked about so the work I've done around the world, and particularly in markets in Africa and. Uh, working in the Middle East, Palestine especially, but a couple of other markets there. Um, you know, when I think about, you know, sort of as I wind down, let's say over the next decade at Foundry, like where do I want to spend my time? Um, you know, I'm old, but not that old. So I, I those are the things I really want to continue to lean into uh, as I yeah. think about how entrepreneurship can be a catalyst for good in the world. Um, I definitely have another book in me, Elizabeth and I have already talked about. We've got sort of two things we're working on right now. Okay. Um, that we're going to get into, and um, and so that's that's kind of how I want to think about the next, I don't know, ten or twenty years of of my life. I want to, My wife is doing some really interesting investing in um, in local um, sort of main street real estate, and and essentially, oh, cool. she's not doing it because of the new builders, but she's essentially leasing. Uh, she's buying buildings, fixing them up. This is in Longmont, where we live. And, um, and then leasing them out to local businesses, essentially to new builders for for below market rates to help keep the vibrancy of downtown going I as a for-profit that. endeavor, right? She's making money doing it. Um, so I want to, I love that, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not super involved in that other than occasionally yeah. looking at a spreadsheet that she has developed on a, a new project, but I, I want to be supportive in that. So, I mean, those are, you know, those are all the things I, I think about, uh, wanting to do. So, um, I think there's a lot more to come. I'm excited about the future, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, we might need to do like a part two. There's so much we we just did, ran out of time. We might have to have you back on, Seth, because you've got I'm so many it. things coming down the pipe. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Tell everybody where they can reach out to Foundry and where they can found, find your book, anything like that.
1: Absolutely. The easy way to find Foundry is foundry.vc. And uh, the best resource for the book is to go to the newbuilders.com. We have all sorts of different ways to buy it, including a bunch of local bookstores that supported us through our efforts. So those are great ways to buy it. Also, you can buy it on Amazon and it's on Audible, things like that. Um, But all sorts of things there. And and we actually just released a whole uh, class syllabus uh, along with quizzes and things like that. It's all available free on the website for anyone that's listening that happens to uh, be a professor and is interested in, in using either all of the book or part of the book in their course materials as well.
0: That's so neat. Well, thank you so much for your time, Seth. It was so great just getting to know you a little bit better and getting to know Foundry, Pledge One Percent, the book, everything. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us.
1: Thank you so much, Emily. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Sliced podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of Sliced, please email newsroom at com. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.